And joining us is Dr. David Edward Walker. He is a psychologist, writer, and musician who consults with the Yakima Indian Nation and writes about Western mental health system complicity in the oppression of indigenous people. And he's here today to talk to us about suicide in Indian Nation. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Walker. It's a pleasure to have you on our show today. Okay, thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be here. So can you tell us, please, about sort of the state of suicide in Indian Nation, and particularly youth suicide, uh, and a little bit, even before we go there, a little bit about your own background, your own connection to Indian country, and and uh, why you think this is an important topic to talk about, and talk about in a different way, because I understand that you have a different approach to talking about suicide and a different way of looking at it. Oh, sure. Uh, well, thanks, MK. To say a little bit about myself, I'm a suburban white boy who grew up in uh, northern suburbs of Detroit. Looking back at my family heritage, you know, on my mother's side, it goes all the way back to Puritan times, and I have grandfathers going back in that direction who literally uh, aimed cannons at Native people as they were beginning to come onto uh, their land and take it over. I have a grandfather, Captain Richard Walker, back in the late 1600s, who was uh, present at the massacre of the Pequot people and participated in that horrific massacre of women and children. Then I turned to my father's side, and going back in that direction, uh, I have grandmothers who walked the Trail of Tears on the hills of Tennessee, catching the a refugee group being pushed from their own land, the Cherokee people being moved to um, Indian territory before it was the state of Oklahoma. And I have a, a number of grandmothers who were intermarried with white men who followed that trail with the refugees and ended up settling in the state of Missouri in uh, southwest Missouri. So that heritage was suppressed in my family for many years, but through uh, working in Indian country, uh, become more mindful of, of the connection there, although I was really pretty much connected with it since I was a little boy to my grandmother, uh, who was born in Stella, Oklahoma. Uh, but it's probably the best way to put it with regard to my family connections to Indian country is I have generations uh, going back of uh, family members, ancestors who really sat on the cultural periphery between white and Indian and uh, were part of the, the mediating or the even the uh, the relationship, the intermarriage uh, relationships uh, between families. So that's my background, but uh, what drew me out to Indian country was a very strong interest in cultural psychology. And also, uh, I've always had a very strong interest in what's called liberation psychology, which is a, um, a dedication of psychologists uh, to working with people who are oppressed and disadvantaged by the mainstream society. Uh, so that brought me out to Indian country, working with the Indian Health Service in the year 2000. And I uh, was very honored to accept a position working with the 14 Confederated Tribes and Bands of the Yakima Nation for Washington. Um, I worked with the Indian Health Service for four years. It was a very tumultuous relationship between me and, and the federal government. Uh, uh, dedicated health service to Indian people. Uh, I was not alone in having that kind of tumultuous relationship. A lot of people have had that experience working professionally with that agency. Uh, I ended up working with the tribe for a couple of years 
uh, afterwards um, on contract uh, full time, and then moved to Seattle where I took a professorship and uh, uh, began researching the history of mental health in Indian country, wanting to know more about it. Uh, but I've always maintained a part-time contract, uh, particularly working as a consultant to the tribal school at Yakima Nation and have uh, many friendships there, uh, which I treasure very much. So that's uh, that's been an introduction of how I came to the, to, uh, to the topic of, of trying to help the youth, uh, having been encouraged by, um, by elders uh, at Yakima Nation, this being the number one most important thing that would be called to my attention, please help us with our youth. Um, and uh, so I've always been very involved from that direction. And of course, this brings us to the topic that we're talking about right now, which is uh, youth suicide. And I say youth suicide, despite the fact that we have suicides of uh, all different age groups uh, in Native America, uh, but we particularly have uh, this problem among the youth uh, ages 15 to 24, where suicide is the second leading cause of death. So I'll pause there for, for a second. I also understand how you define suicide is, is different. Well, I you know, the first thing I would say is suicide is a tremendous loss for uh, family members uh, and for communities, but especially on close-knit reservation-based communities. Um, it's just one of the most tragic things that can happen to a family and to loved ones, uh, but also a really deeply affects um, close and cohesive communities that um, have had to uh, work so hard uh, to maintain uh, their culture and to live in resilient ways. Uh, so this this becomes such a huge travesty each time a youth is lost or takes uh, his or her own life. So um, that is something that um, <clears throat> is not something that can be drilled down or, um, I'm sorry, explained in a sort of a singular single factor or, or a set of several factors. Um, but what what does uh, come up for me as far as where I'm coming from that's different than, say, the typical mental health approach uh, is, the, is some of the ideas that come through the Indian Health Service in particular and are kind of brought forward as a, as a kind of theory of... Uh, uh, indigenous suicide, if you will, but it's not really kind of very much openly stated. And that theory would basically say that people uh, are killing themselves because they're depressed. You know, um, I don't see it that way. Uh, I see it that people are killing themselves uh, for, as we say, many different reasons, many possible factors. But depression, uh, you know, singling out depression is a way of distracting attention from the oppressive circumstances that people are dealing with, uh, including poverty, uh, disenfranchisement from the uh, benefits of uh, the greater society, uh, educational issues, uh, economic problems, uh, um, all sorts of uh, efforts to destroy uh, culture uh, and uh, so many other facets of disenfranchisement racism and discrimination, et cetera. So that's the way I typically see the, the uh, causal elements of what goes into uh, increasing the likelihood 
of suicide. As you investigated the history of the mental health system in the indigenous community, what did you uncover? Let me tell you a little bit about the story of how that happened. Um, When I first came to work for the IHS in 2000 in Yakima IHS Clinic in central Washington, I was quite amazed to discover that the agency itself had a very uh, mainstream what I would call a very sort of Euro-American-based approach to mental health. I had come through my own training uh, in a newer field of uh, cultural and multicultural psychology. And so I was very amazed to see how uh, what I would have seen in the suburbs of North Detroit or various other places in the big city was out here in this rural area, and that was basically to line people up under descriptive categories that overlapped quite a bit under what we call the DSM system, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders put up by the American Psychiatric Association, and to kind of line people up and label them and prescribe so-called antidepressant medications to them under the heading of you are depressed. And this was such a a common thing that was going on, and it was the first approach before any sort of sit-down counseling or uh, so-called therapy kinds of involvement with that that patient. So that was the frontline thing that was being done, and I was quite shocked by that. Um, And so I began to sort of sit back and try to understand a little bit more about why this was being done, Um, and uh, I couldn't come up with a really uh, great reason for it. And that was going on at the same time as we were having an increase in, in uh, youth suicide on our reservation. And I was being, as a new guy on, on the reservation, I was being asked if I could help with that issue and try to understand why um, so many youth were, were taking their own lives. And so this was all happening at the same time as, as this massive uh, use of, of uh, SSRI antidepressants on the reservation and the labeling. And so I saw it as um, not helpful and, uh, and p- potentially even uh, destructive uh, and began to uh, try to delve into the research around, um, around suicide in particular, around the use of these drugs. And uh, in 2000, 2001 was right around the time when research was just beginning to emerge uh, that uh, antidepressants, especially SSRIs, uh, had the potential to increase suicidal behavior. And we now know uh, through numerous studies that uh, SSRIs uh, increase uh, risk of suicidal behavior uh, among youth, uh, 15 to 24, uh, or we can go even down to 12 to 24, uh, by up to two, two and a half times. Okay. So uh, research supports the idea that these. These drugs can increase suicide in a population, subpopulation of uh, Native people, uh, often um, most at uh, hazard of engaging in suicidal behavior. So I became very concerned about that, and I began writing internal memos in the uh, Indian Health Service while I worked there, kind of bringing up some of this new research, realizing, you know, that this is fairly new research that was still creating a lot of stir. And I'm talking mostly about research that was coming from a fellow named David Healy, a psychiatrist in research in in the UK. And I was getting some advanced copies on on that research. So uh, in any event, um, 
the research that I was bringing up was pretty much what I had to say about it was being disregarded and uh, not responded to. And, and then we had a, um, an incident where uh, a particular youth uh, uh, took their own lives on the reservation after being uh, put on twice the adult dosage of uh, an SSRI um, medication. And um, I began to think that uh, the medication itself had a direct uh, uh, factor in, in that use taking their own life. And so uh, I became a little bit uh, more forthright and uh, I got in a fair amount of trouble uh, simply by bringing up these ideas that the medications themselves uh, might be uh, a factor in increasing youth suicide on the reservation. Nowadays, this would be less controversial, but then it was um, really frowned upon to be uh, kind of going against the grain of what the strategy was. Now, unfortunately, this still remains the strategy of the Indian Health Service. The Indian Health Service is a very strong uh, sort of set of ideas, an ideology, if you will, about preventing suicide uh, through a lot of emphasis on these drugs, on antidepressant uh, drugs, so-called. Uh, and I, I continue to believe that uh, that's not only um, an ineffective approach, potentially a, an approach that uh, could be dangerous, for, especially for the subset of, of uh, uh, patients served by IHS who are in the youth category. And if you just tuned in, we've been speaking with Dr. David Walker. He is a private practice psychologist, researcher, and writer whose research aims to expose the Western mental health movement's complicity in cultural oppression. And what did you find out as you began looking into the history of mental health and what, how that informs our mental health system today? What was dramatic for me, MK, was... Um, to get in in such get such heat for putting out these various internal memos and trying to figure out what is this kind of kill the messenger thing going on here? Why am I getting in, in so much trouble? Why is this? I really wanted to understand what am I in here? Uh, you know, um, Native people, the Yakima people I know, and many of the people in that area, they taught me a lot about their own knowledge of history. And we were really starting to really talk more openly about intergenerational trauma and grief and historical trauma. And I became intrigued with the idea of what if there is a very important factor to this that has to do with the intergenerational history of my own profession? Would that offer some value in trying to understand where I am situated, why I'm being put on a performance plan? Uh, because I keep bringing up issues that are upsetting to people. The Indian Health Service is run by the United States Public Health Service, one of the um, uniformed uh, services of, uh, of, the, of the United States. And uh, the Indian Health Service is an extension of the, of the um, uh, USPH, United States Public Health uh, Service. Um, it it um, was... Uh, an agency created in the 1950s out of the public health service. Now, it's really important to mention that many uh, tribal behavioral health or mental health programs are operated under grants from the Indian Health Service. And that would, um, that comes under uh, 
the uh, public law 638, which allows tribes to o- uh, take over the management of uh, federally operated programs un- under these grants. And, and the illusion is that the, the uh, grants give the tribes a greater degree of sovereignty in, uh, in running the programs as they would like to. But that's not the case because um, IHS oversees the grants. And so uh, in order, for example, to operate a, a tribal mental health program, you have to uh, utilize the IHS uh, behavioral health manual and, uh, and the policies that are therein. And so um, uh, these policies are very much akin to the policies you'd see anywhere else in the public health service, which are very mainstream and very much tied to a kind of central sort of psychiatric, biologically driven mental health model. Uh, With a lot of pseudoscientific claims uh, within that model, claims of depression having to do with a chemical imbalance, which is uh, a falsehood entirely, uh, and uh, a variety of other, those types of claims of of, of genetic aspects to uh, mental disorders, which is another area of, of, of pseudoscience and false science. Uh, but all these uh, these ideas are embedded in what we call the medical model that uh, is inside uh, very much historically inside the public health service. So that's descended into the Indian health service and is very entrenched, uh, so very resistant to looking at things more from a cultural, uh, social standpoint. Uh, very difficult to get much traction with those kinds of points of view uh, without encountering a lot of resistance from uh, this very embedded psychiatric model that's inside the IHS. So as a result of getting into a fair amount of trouble, but feeling a lot of support from Native people in the community who wanted me to stick around and wanted me to keep working with the youth in the schools and stuff, I um, started to investigate uh, where does this all come from? And I got a hold of uh, a book from an Irish bookstore. Had it shipped from Ireland to, to, all the way to central Washington. An American book um, by a fellow named Thomas Russell Garth, and it was called uh, Race Psychology, a Psychology of mental, uh, Racial Mental Differences, and discovered this psychologist from 1931 who had collected all, all these different research studies, not only by him and his students, but many other people, uh, done during the American and British uh, eugenics movement, the effort to breed better humans. And this was uh, primarily of different uh, intelligence tests and t- uh, done by psychologists, but also tests of character, tests of temperament, uh, what we sometimes call personality these days, uh, tens- uh, tests of reaction time among uh, primarily American Indian students in uh, boarding schools. Uh, who had been uh, uh, often forcibly uh, removed from their homes and sent off to uh, these distant locations to be re-socialized into uh, uh, Euro-American cultural pathways, including abandoning their language, having their hair cut, uh, uh, and being um, uh, often physically abused and sometimes sexually abused in these settings. Um, so this was a, a real big find for me because it it was really clear that my profession had been com- complicit in Native American oppression in very direct ways, uh, in, in particular even even influencing the curricula of these boarding schools, which were often uh, geared uh, 
towards the uh, presumably inferior intelligence of the native children uh, in that they would be taught to uh, be, uh, you know, learn manual labor or, or be uh, socialized into the domestic kinds of tasks, such as kitchen workers or, or maids. Okay, so uh, I, I saw this and I was, I was amazed by it. Uh, and, and so I, um, I decided that I wanted to really look into this and I was able to get some more uh, materials. But one of the most important things I got a hold of was an article by uh, Amanda Hidatsa, three affiliated tribes, uh, young leader named Kamina Yellowbird um, that, that was called Wild Indians. It's still available on the internet. You can find this article uh, from about 2001. Uh, um, Kamina's um, research and experience with the uh, Hiawatha Asylum for Insane Indians, uh, which is in Canton, South, was in Canton, South Dakota. All that's left of that facility, by the way, is a, is a graveyard out in the middle of a golf course. Um, but that grave, which I think there's a number of about 200 graves there, Kamina and then numerous other people sought to have. Uh, uh, have blessed and have ceremony around. Uh, and this was the story of that asylum that she had reconstructed. And it was first I'd heard of that asylum. So now I had both the psychology infiltrating the boarding schools to uh, prove that Native children were inferior and that if those effects on, on um, stereotypes of uh, the dumb Indian, uh, the un- ineducable Indian. And then I also had this new information about the Hiawatha Asylum for Insane Indians, where uh, the discovery, uh, of course, the scandalous discovery, even back then in 1933, was that uh, the grand majority of people being held in that asylum were uh, either resistant or in the way of federal policies uh, having to do with uh, uh, Native people. So uh, basically political prisoners, uh, and the Hiawatha Asylum is serving as kind of a gulag for those people. So it was closed in such circumstances where people were uh, really quite brutalized, people being uh, locked up uh, for years at a time in a room, being chained to uh, uh, radiators in the building, uh, a lot of neglect and a lot of abuse. Um, and so it was closed down in scandal. Uh, but I was also not only interested in the asylum itself, but also in all of the facets of mental hygiene, quote unquote, that had come into Indian country. And where did this all come from? Because it still goes before the asylum and before those boarding school days. So I have a book that will be coming out uh, in fall 2021 on Washington State University Press. Uh, I've been working on various iterations of it for about 10 or 12 years now, but I've finally got something done. I've been an enormous task to try to uh, pull together all this information, and in, in particular, uh, to try to uh, rise up to the goal of uh, connecting the past with the present to help people understand how the current practices that go on in the mental health system in Native America relate to past practices and where they come from. For example, when we talk about youth suicide and the terrible tragedy that that is, it's kind of amazing to look back 60 years and see the various papers on uh, youth suicide that were written uh, in psychiatry back in the 1960s, or to go further back and discover that people were attempting to take their own lives 
uh, back in the Hiawatha Asylum for Insane Indians. And so this is not a new problem. And if you just tuned in, we've been speaking with Dr. David Walker. He is a private practice psychologist, researcher, and writer whose research aims to expose the Western mental health movement's complicity in cultural oppression. And we'll bring you part two of this conversation tomorrow. For KSFR's Wake Up Call, this is M.K. Mendoza. Talk to you tomorrow.